You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week. We are doing sports media on this one. Chad Finn the fine sports media writer and general columnist for the Boston Globe. He is my first guest. And we get into uh, a lot of NBA stuff, discussing the NBA Finals between the Celtics and Warriors on a media um, kind of outlook, what we think of viewership, what it might compare to previous NBA Finals viewership, talk about like the importance, obviously, of the series going long, which uh, would really boost uh, the numbers obviously out of home is going to be a factor as well so we're taught we have a we, we do some time on the Celtics Warriors which we both think is a really really interesting series talk about ESPN's uh, studio and game program particularly in relation to Turner's and where ESPN sits right now do a little bit on Greg Olson finally officially being named as Fox number one NFL analyst and then we get into Nesson which uh, is giving Red Sox and Bruins games direct to consumer now. You can literally uh, purchase uh, the the games direct consumer, not having to get uh, a cable bundle. That's that's an interesting experiment here by Nesson, and uh, will probably be a template for others around the country doing that. And we get into the price point and and how that will work, and and whether it's smart for consumers. So Chad Finn the start. He's followed by Luis. Radnovsky, a sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal, she had a really excellent piece, testing positive in zero COVID China, and that was about her being isolated under the aggressive COVID policies in China during the Olympics. She tested positive 19 hours after arriving in Beijing. She was assigned to cover figure skating at those Olympic Games and then ended up doing it from... uh, from her room, which is obviously very tricky. So we talk about that, talk about the experience of being isolated in China, dealing with Chinese officials. Also her reporting on Brittany Griner being held in Russia against her will. Uh, Louise has done reporting on that. The new public campaign now to advocate for Griner, much more public now than it has been before, and that's a strategic decision. And then a little bit on the future of USA Gymnastics, which again is uh, part of Louise's beat. So Chad Finn to start, Luis Radnovsky to finish, Again, saying this at the top, you guys have been great about this, but when it comes to this podcast, it really matters if you leave reviews on uh, where you get this podcast. Uh, you know, most of you probably get it through uh, like an Apple or Spotify. If you leave a five star review and a nice note about why you like this podcast, my bosses do see it and, uh, and it helps this podcast continue. So thank you for the continued support. All right, some sports media talk with Chad Finn and Luis Radnovsky coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, he's back on the podcast, one of the regulars, Chad Finn of the Boston Globe. He is their sports media writer as well as a general columnist. Chad, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. 
Glad to be back again. Thanks, Richard. Chad, I got to figure out a way to the, maybe, maybe like, you know, like some kind of partnership with the Boston Globe, you know, the way that Marshan and Oran have the, oh, interesting. the two powers, the two sports business journal, New York Post powers that have combined forces together to put their big army together. Am I supposed no, to I pretend like we haven't talked about this uh, off? Know, off uh, down the road. <laughs> we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll see what, we'll see where that goes. All right, Chad, there's a lot to get to. So let's, uh, let's get to it quick. I want to start off with the NBA finals and you know, very fortuitous that you were on this podcast, of course, because you cover and write about the Celtics there in your city. And where I want to start is with viewership, because that, you know, in our world, obviously, is a major, major story. I think just given this matchup, Warriors are far and away the most national of all the NBA teams. Celtics, obviously, major market in Boston, usually over index when it comes to national games. They will beat 20 and 21 for sure. For the listeners' sake, let me tell you what those numbers were. The Bucks over the Suns in six games averaged 9.91 million viewers. The Lakers over the Heat in six games. This is the bu- This is in the bubble. October, average yeah. seven. Yeah, average. Correct, Chad. As you said, different uh, different time of the year. That averaged 7.45 million. Probably the series to think about with all this is 2019. Raptors over the Warriors in six games, 15.14 million average viewers. So that's the last time where we had a quote-unquote sort of like, I don't know, you know, pre-COVID normal finals. There is, of course, the caveats that the Raptors are a Canadian team, so you don't get that home market of Toronto. And you had the Warriors sort of really at the end of that sort of mini dynasty. Eating up and in, in that today's series. World, yeah, they were hurt during yeah. And today's and in the last one, I would just say in today's world, you'll get out of home viewing, which will obviously have an impact five to ten percent. All right, so my I'm, I'm, I'll see to you quickly, but uh, I'll follow up on you. But my initial thought is this will be a very this will be a, this is this has the potential for a great viewership series, particularly if it goes long. Your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's going to be fairly similar viewership wise to probably 2015, where you're going back uh, quite a ways and. Um, you know, ESPN ABC would probably feel really good about that. That was Cleveland Golden State, their first matchup of I think, I think it was four straight, three straight, four straight, and uh, so many compelling angles in that one. Obviously, we won't have to rehash those, but uh, it was a six-game series, got an eleven-point-six rating, average fifteen-point-five, nineteen-point-nine uh, million viewers. Wow! Um, I, I predicted about ten-six. And uh, somewhere around 18 million for this one, but I think it's going to be no kidding. I think it's going to be a series, a really good series um, that runs long, and it's it's going to capture people's interest beyond what it does now. With Golden State being the most interesting team in the league, most fun to watch, and the Celtics, you know, being a storied franchise back here with a different group of players than they were uh, 12 years ago, the last time they were in the finals. So I think this is going to be a great one. So let's get into that. Again, um, for the listener's sake, what all these executives root for is Mm -hmm. that's what they want. Because even, you know, smaller cities, I put that in quotes, you know, smaller cities, smaller television markets, to be precise. If those would go seven games, you'd get a really, really, really big number for game seven. You know, if it's Bucks, uh, I'm trying to think, what's a small market city? Jed Bucks, Phoenix, right? right? Last year, yeah. Those are, you know. Yeah, in relative television terms, you know, if, they, if that goes seven in a normal year, 
that's big numbers. So you're predicting that's I think your prediction is higher than mine. Like my thought would have been like and again, I have to actually <laughs> I have to send this to uh, Bill Shea of the Athletic. I have to actually now just give me a chance to think about this. I think if the series goes deep, we're looking 15, 16 million. But maybe I am am I under am I underplaying this a little bit because I'm um I, you know, the last couple series, even though there's a lot of caveats to it, the NBA didn't hit over 10 in the finals. Hit over 10 yeah. million. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you're you went you went back to 2015, which was pretty interesting. I I didn't know that. You know, I guess I I guess one thing that I can't figure out is the um, Steph Curry is the most popular player in the NBA when it comes to a national figure, more than LeBron. But he's also been in the finals. A yeah, it's the six. So what I'm trying to figure out, yeah, what I'm trying to figure out, sort of, I, I know people hate this word, narrative wise, is has there been enough time since they've last been in it in 2019 where people are really excited to see? Steph Curry again in the finals. Maybe the answer is yes. Uh, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, Clay Thompson is probably the most liked player in the NBA. Just uh, and nobody dislikes yeah. Clay Thompson. He's uh, really fun to watch and a goofy character with a uh, comeback story here. Um, I think that's a factor. I think you look back at those uh, four straight Cleveland Golden State series, 19.9 million, 20.2, 20.4, the last yeah. year. I think there was probably a little bit of fatigue from that matchup uh, in, in 20, 2018. But I, 2018, yep. Sweep too, right? Yeah, 4-0. Um, you know, we haven't had a, yep. had a, had a yep. seven-game series since, uh, God, it's been a while, 16, I think, uh, which was also that great one when the 72-win Warriors didn't win the title. But um, uh, I, 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 I'm pretty dismissive of the last couple of years. They're, like you said, they're variables. They're variables. They're Incredible variables where uh, the whole yep. world was out of whack. We don't need to elaborate on it very much. Um, uh, the bubble was just not a good television product, and nobody was really in the mood for it either beyond wanting some sports in their lives. And uh, last year just wasn't a great series, and that was played a little bit later into the summer in July. So uh, I'm going back to uh, normal times uh, for my viewership numbers for these. And, and uh, I think we're going to every game in the series ought to be a good one. And uh, it, it's going to build momentum and probably go seven. So I think it's going to get great numbers. All right. I wish I had a buzzer here. Culture war alert. I, I mean, I uh -oh. wish I had some kind of, uh, you know, sound effect. So, again, I, 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 there's no bad faith people who are ever going to change their mind. You can monetize this stuff. But if we do get a um, 15, 16, 17 million, whatever, you know, viewership for these finals, average viewership. And again, it's going to have to go long because I don't think a four game series would do that. Would it at least finally put away the. Uh, the notion that like <laughs> social justice uh, messaging from the NBA destroyed the league. No, no one is ever going to watch the league again. I, I mean, I guess I could have a reasonable conversation with people on. Yes, the the NBA's the NBA is not as public with this stuff. If you want to get into like, it's not on a jersey, it's not on the floor. But I've always sort of been struck by the notion that like are you seriously not going to watch the national basketball association because like something is on the floor or something's on a jersey and then did you suddenly come back to watch these games because that's not there anymore 
again, is there a small percentage of people? I mean, probably, but like there's a small percentage of people who eat like uh, uh, horse meat. You know what I mean, Chad? Like it's like you find a small percentage of people do anything. I, I just hope that at least in broad as a broad play, at least for people who are willing to still sort of traffic in factual data, that if they get a big number here, you'll at least recognize that a lot of that was just bogus and BS and just you were pushed a lot of culture war nonsense. And my argument would be the same thing happened right. with the NFL. Like, yeah. Yeah, like people, like everybody who said they'd never watch the NFL again, like look at the viewership from last year. And you can't tell me like, oh, well, those people came back because Colin Kaepernick left. So I mean, it's just, it's, it's absurd. It's like, I always get into this notion, like you're not going to watch the Buffalo Bills like your beloved team because some dude 3,000 miles away is doing something. It just, it makes no logical sense. So if nothing else, I hope that if the viewership number is big, and again, I think the only way that can happen is with length, that at least in, you know, reasonable minded quarters, like that kind of goes away forever. I don't expect it to go away because again, you can monetize this shit, but I would at least hope that the, a reasonable thinking person is like, okay, that was probably a lot of sort of garbage and and some of the declines really had to do with change of calendar and COVID related and, you know, matchups aren't great or maybe the game isn't as appealing, but, you know, it's not because 5 million Americans decided we're never watching this again because there's a, there's a social justice slogan on the back of someone's shirt. 99% of the people who said they weren't watching again weren't watching anyway. They're the people who said the NBA peaked in the 80s, which, you know, I happen to agree with. I grew up watching Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. I I mean, I I thought we thought that argument was it peaked in the 90s with Jordan, no? Well, maybe. I guess if if, if that's their generation. But uh, the the other, I'm curious on this, Richard, about what the, uh, you know, the overlap is between those uh, people. I'm not going back because of the social justice and the people uh, who will complain about Steve Kerr's comments about gun rights. I, yeah. I, I imagine that Venn diagram is pretty close to a circle. I, I agree. And, yeah. But um, what, by the way, why, why can't we leadership. live? I mean, I interrupt you. I'm sorry. Why can't we live in a world where one can like be critical of the NBA's relationship with China, which, which is, which is absolutely deserved criticism and a, an absolute money grab. And, also say, you know what, Steve Steve Kerr like speaks to something I care about. Like his his despair and anger and passion like is something I I related to. And I have no problem with this guy saying this because he speaks in many ways for me. No, not allowed to be nuanced anymore. Ugh. Anyway, sorry. I, I did not mean to get into this. Keep going. I I I I, I interrupted you. No, I mean that that you know uh, that's it. Uh, my my fundamental point with this has always been the same thing with the NBA, with the NFL. Uh, more so with the NBA because everybody watches the NFL. But with the NBA, the people who say they aren't going to watch anymore haven't been watching anymore anyway. And and uh, they're, they're just using it as a, a cover to complain about some change in their world that they're uncomfortable with or have been told is a bad thing from uh, you know the channels they settle their television on. Yeah, you got to be careful when you relate to stuff. Like, uh, I remember LeBron James. Didn't, I think, you know... Like I think LeBron James endorsed Hillary Clinton, and like there were probably some people who were like, "Oh, that's going to be game changing." It, it wasn't in the same way. Like, up, oh, um, uh, you know, Donald Trump called out uh, call, the Big Ten for not playing. Thus, he's going to win all the Big Ten states. So, it, it's 
you know, Americans are sort of, they're, <laughs> they do a lot of things for a lot of different reasons. And, and, and people make sort of decisions sometimes when it comes to television, really as like mundane as like, um, you know, it's raining outside. So I'm going to go in and like watch sports. And if it's sunny outside, well, I'm taking my kids to the park and I'm not going to watch like that sporting event that, that day. The NFL again is sort of one of the only things left in society where it's sort of like, it's, uh, it, what's, it's, it's like full, uh, what's, it's, uh, it's what's what's the phrase I'm looking for in terms of like uh, ratings proof. It's almost like culture proof, Chad. Right? <laughs> in terms of like nothing sort of in the culture can stop that machine from continuing and you watching it. But that's they about the only thing. Worried a few years ago, though. You know? Yeah, that's they did. Yeah, maybe Top Gun Maverick is the other thing too. It seems like that. Uh, have you seen it yet? I haven't, but I've. No, but I, again, I have heard from people who I trust that it's a very fun popcorn movie and yeah, well worth seeing. Sounds like they knew what they were doing. Yeah. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, a couple things here. The... Um you have any thoughts on the staffing for the NBA Finals? Um, Lisa Salters is the new sideline reporter uh, taking over what's traditionally been the Doris Burke role. That's a pretty uh, nice spot for her. I think a very smart move by ESPN to get you know uh, someone as competent and professional as Doris in there. Uh, as we're taping this, uh, Mike Breen is uh, in COVID protocol. And the last time I checked with ESPN, um, they thought that it was no guarantee that everybody – would be there for game one. Huh. So that would mean either um, maybe Van Gundy's under the weather. He sounded Breen's horrible the other night. Did you catch yeah, that? Yeah, maybe Breen still has to clear. Yeah. So, but again, like, um, you know, let's make the presumption that at some point it's Breen, Jackson, and Van Gundy. And then, of course, you have NBA's countdown, you know, the um, Greenberg, Stephen A., Wilbon crew. As an overall sort of assessment, what do you think of ESPN? What do you think of the group that will be at the finals for ESPN as far as talent. Um, you want to start broadcast or studio? Uh, you start, you tell me, you start wherever you want. Uh, we, you know, I get some laments from ESPN PR sometimes that, uh, the TNT studio guys get away with more than what the ESPN ones do. Uh, right. And I think we're talking to the same people. And people we absolutely are. Too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's fair to a degree. Uh, you know, but Barkley's on a different plane. He's, uh, He's, he's one of those people who can actually speak his mind and not um, not really face consequences, even in situations where maybe he should face some small ones. Uh, I think that's good. I mean, just because I think Charles Barkley's great at what he does. And I tend to uh, honestly, I tend to agree with most of what he says. So um but uh, I, I do think some of the ESPN guys deserve credit, particularly Jalen Rose. Uh, you know, so much of what they do has to be shoehorned in. They have that little break after at halftime where uh, they have like, it feels like about 15 seconds of speak where somebody just does a real quick hit thing and then they go from commercial to commercial. Then they come back for their little short halftime segment, but they don't get the runway uh, that 
um, the TNT guys do to really elaborate on stuff and to have the banter and back and forth. It's like quick hit, quick hit, quick hit. You, uh, you know, you make your, uh, 15 second prediction here, Stephen A. And then we're back to the game. It's just so packed with commercials, but, um, I do, if I had to cite one guy there that I think does a really good job and, uh, is someone who I want to hear what he has to say about pretty much every circumstance, it would be Jalen. Yeah, well, so I have a couple things on this. One, I, I do think ESPN has a lot of interesting people that they could use in a pre- and post-game setting beyond the group that they have. Is there. this going to turn you into know, a like green thing again? No, 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 no. <laughs> Actually, I don't even want to talk. I mean, the host is almost in many ways sort of irrelevant outside of just being ego-free and letting your analyst shine. But, like, I think Kendrick Perkins is an interesting voice, and he's very different. He does local to here, too. Um, he's on NBC Sports. Yeah, and, like, yeah. I think J.J. Reddick is an interesting voice, mm -hmm. and he, he says things and comes up with things that are different than me. I've always found Legler to be kind of an interesting uh, voice. I like Jalen. I always have. I think he's... I think he's different and interesting and, and unique and thoughtful. Right. So, like, th this is all subjective. Like, you know, some people love Wilbon and Stephen A uh, going back and forth and and the love Jalen and Magic or whatever. It's just like if I was staffing it, just me, Richard Deitch, like that wouldn't be – the current group that exists now would not be the group that I would have. But here's something structurally, Chad, that I think for the studio is one of the reasons where ESPN – sort of can never compete with inside the NBA. This is just my thought. Outside of the fact that Barkley's probably the biggest unicorn in the history of sports studio programming, you'll never get another guy like him. And the fact that the chemistry of that show is phenomenal and Shaq's an all-timer, so he's just interesting because he's Shaq. They get so much time after mm -hmm. games where they can really get into stuff, right? They can go 12, 13, 14 minutes a row on, on a segment and they do funny stuff. Tangents they, are allowed. You know, they're they're allowed to. Yeah, yeah. They Ernie make fun of him themselves back in when he has to. Right. ESPN has made the strategic decision, right? That they, that they after their games, they want SportsCenter to be the the star. Correct. Yeah. Like that's that's the programming they're highlighting. So they've made a decision. Like to me, like you could, and I think they've done this sometimes in the past. But like you you could make their your post game show like an hour and like try to highlight like that show and and the the people on that show as opposed to interwoven it between let's say like van pelt and and the 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 post game like so the difference is like espn has made a decision let's say in van pelt's case that like that's the person they really want to highlight with that big lead in where turner makes a decision like what we want to highlight is inside the nba and our guys there. Then, it, of course, it just sort of extends in the fact that I just think Turner's ethos and their POV of how they do studio shows is much more free-flowing, much more jazz than ESPN. I mean, they had Barkley coming in on a horse, right? <laughs> Could you imagine, like, ESPN trying that? They just – it just – they – they're conservative. They wouldn't do you it. You remind me, Barkley no, on a I mean, horse reminded me of something that they've been doing locally up here to the Celtics broadcast, which is having crowds behind you during the studio right. programs. and. It's awful. It, it, you can't hear uh, the analysts a lot of time. NBC Sports Boston up here has a uh, has uh, someone who uh, stays outside the garden up on top, like of the main escalator entrance to the building. He can't hear the questions from the studio host who is sitting yeah. in the garden with fans screaming behind them. And then I was dismayed to see TNT pick that up that uh, and do that. And, you know, Barkley and Kenny couldn't hear each other sitting next to each other for part of that. Yeah, they make that decision. You know, they 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 sort of 
they, I agree. I think that's a fair criticism or whatever the word would be. But they have made the decision that they want the immediacy or the feeling of atmosphere sometimes versus what. Yeah, you it brings energy, out. but uh, the the degree of difficulty for those guys in the studio goes up exponentially. Yeah, that that was sort of my uh, a little bit of an issue this year for me with ESPN at the draft is that the the Greenberg set that was inside the yeah. draft it's loud and sometimes it's hard to hear your analyst where the NFL Network was outside that place and um, and you could hear. What do you them. think uh, of the decision? Though, I would just say quick with having it go into SVP because you you made me think of like it would be. Uh, when the finals would be over, it'd be Dan Patrick who was hosting the coverage. He wasn't the Sports Center rank at the time, or I, I think I think they're I think for them it's probably their smartest play because I think they have a they have a popular host in Van Pelt who's produced really good ratings, and so it brands their Sports Center. Uh, it, it you know it's it's great branding for their for their Sports Center brand, which is very important to Norby Williamson and. And Pataro and Dave Roberts yeah. and the rest of that crew. So I think business-wise, I think it's probably smart. I do think though that the downside or what you're trading off is you're trading off you're trading off improving or making your studio show more entertaining and um, and growing that that brand that particular brand because the, the, the honestly and I know you know the ESPN PR people don't want to hear this per se, but like. It's still a massive, it's still a gigantic, gigantic difference between the two Leona shows. Barkley. It just is. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not saying that the I'm not saying the studio show at ESPN hasn't improved and they've done really good things with like NBA Today. And I think uh, Malika Andrews is a phenomenal host and all that stuff. That's all true. But the reality is, if if you were to ask NBA fans what show would they want after major games, who would they want to hear from? Ninety percent of them, I think, would choose inside the NBA, and I actually yeah, may I be low so on too. my estimate. Um, and yeah, that is no knock on ESPN. It just happens they happen to be competing with the greatest studio show. Uh, I don't know if it's arguably uh, if it's in the history of sports. I mean, you. you no, I, think, I mean, it's also you can go back to Jimmy, but the I think it and, is and Musburger yeah, and you right. know NFL Today kind of creating that uh, that that uh, format more or less, but um, nothing nothing in the last 20, 25 years has come close to it. And it hasn't slowed down either. Those guys are still as entertaining as ever. I was really skeptical when they added Shaq back in 2014 or whatever year it was, because the chemistry was already perfect, but yeah. he comes in there and he, he's so good at needling Barkley. So good at giving Kenny a hard time. And, uh, you know, such a, uh, such a, I mean, he's, he mumbles sometimes, but such a good-natured guy that he actually has made the show even better. Yes, he's been, he's, he's, it's, his broadcast development's one of, one of probably an underwritten story, uh, but he's been excellent. All right, we'll move on to a couple different things, because I know uh, your time is limited here. Greg Olson, finally, officially named as Fox's number one <laughs> NFL analyst. I mean, this has sort of been out there forever. Uh, from, as I'm taping this, or as we are taping this chat, I don't believe the. I, I have a pretty good source that tells me the contract officially is not signed. But you know, they put out the press release that he's their number one guy. Was so that yesterday? You know, the press like, release. Yeah. 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 It's we're taping this on June first, by the way. Yeah. So an agreement in principle, he will be their number one with Kevin Burkhardt, Aaron Andrews, Tom Rinaldi. This is um, piano listen, music. I'm sure Greg Olson. 
wanted to be the number one. He's not. Brady will be whenever that happens. But if you're Greg Olson, this is a phenomenal, phenomenal thing for you, man. You got promoted after one year in the booth of being on the number one team. You're doing a Super Bowl. You're calling the biggest games. No matter what happens, if you impress other networks, if you impress viewers with your work, you're a made man, dude. You are set. So, yeah, I know you probably wanted to be number one. I'm sure in some ways, you know, Brady coming in Bigfoot shoe, that does suck, but I think it's great for Olsen, and I anticipate them being a very good booth. Will they be the best booth out there? I don't know if I'd go that far, but they will be an absolutely professional booth, and I think Fox uh, has done themselves well with Burkhart and Olsen. Yeah, I'm really happy to see Burkhart get rewarded. He's good at everything. He's he's good he's good in the NFL broadcast booth. He's good as a studio host on MLB. Um, again, really good natured, upbeat guy. Some seems to bring out the best in his analysts, and uh, especially on baseball, that can't be that can be pretty challenging with you know Ortiz, A Rod, Frank Thomas. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, he deserves us. That, that, that's what I, I, I really feel about him. And Olsen, I mean, who knows how this plays out? Maybe Brady doesn't show up for two or three years here. I or agree. maybe he's there for two years and says, you know what? This sucks. I'm just going to go shake some hands and not actually appear in the booth and, uh, you know, collect the collect my 30 sap seven and a half million some other way for for fox here but uh it, you know what 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 do you have one year of experience before this last season uh, yeah well, a, a couple few, i mean a couple of games a, here a, and there a couple of yeah. guest spots yeah but yeah i mean this is a meteoric it's a rapid ascent yeah 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 and he's so, good at it too it's going to be a good he's good i agree i'm not really into uh golf uh i, I will say you know i watch like the majors and um you know, maybe if there's some kind of other big uh, event, but like, I can't say I'm a big golf fan. I just, it's a little too slow for me. And yeah, well, I have other issues. I'm with you. Anyway. And I'm writing us open stuff this week. Cause we have it. Here. Yeah. It's yeah. just not my thing, but, but I respect it's obviously a lot of people. And if, by the way, if you're listening and you love golf, thank you for listening. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, my question for you though, Chad, really quickly is uh, the Saudi back to LIV golf league. Uh, yesterday came out. Um, we had a lot of, uh, uh, players decide to play in this including dustin johnson um you know uh, <laughs> sort of shows you they really don't give a shit about saudi arabia's human rights but you know again it gets back to my relationship with the nba and china like you know yeah it's this it's um it's again fair to be critical of it but a lot of these networks uh, not networks a lot of these league sports wash basically when it comes to this do you have and again you would be closer to golf than i would be but what is your sense in terms of the popularity of a television package that features like some breakaway golfers who are who are part of this golf league where the prize money seems like it's going to be insanely higher than the pga tour it depends who the golfers are right i mean dustin johnson's hugely popular but this uh, uh the only other top 20 player over there is uh Oosthuizen, right and and these yeah right but there's they have some top fifty guys right I saw yeah but okay you get two of the top twenty the other eighteen and Mick, doing what about what? Mickelson he's the wild card factor yeah, right yeah he's he yeah he's wildly popular guy but uh, I don't know we'll see what the repercussions end up being because of the PGA Tour is certainly threatening them and and now it it's pretty clear that some of the the uh, more prominent players are uh, not going to be. Not going to give that a second thought. I'm going to go over there and uh, make the cash grab. I, do you think like the? I mean, again, I don't. I don't hang out with enough. You, I'm, you know, I probably call O'Rand and his buddies. He's a big golfer, but I don't have a good. I don't talk to enough golf fans to know. Like, will there be interest in this? 
in this LIV Golf Invitational Series event? Like, will I would think people would at least curiosity sake check out the first one, yeah. but like, is it is there enough there to get a million or two million viewers every week? Like, I, I'm just being honest. Like, I don't know. I feel like you might have a better sense of this than me. I don't know the answer to that. Presuming that they do get some kind of broadcast. I care about product. golf no more than you do, man. But uh, I would say there is. Uh, you know, uh, obviously not in the scale of a major. But uh, right, Sergio Garcia. I'm looking at some of these names. Taylor Gooch. I mean, they have some who's names. Taylor on Gooch, here, right? <laughs> He's like a top fifty guy. <laughs> Charles Schwartzel. That's you a Jim Man special, right? Up. Lee Westwood. You're gonna tell me there's a yeah, guy I mean, named they, you know, Scotty there's Scheffler. So, there's now? some name players here. You're gonna tell me What's there's that? a guy named Scotty Scheffler that's actually good. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have. Scottish Chef is pretty good. Graham McDowell. I mean, again, these are some. Ian Poulter. That's What's a name. What's Tiger doing? Where's, where's Tiger going to be? Uh, I would think PR wise, Tiger wouldn't go for this thing. But yeah. what do I know? Yeah. All right. Anyway, something to watch. I'll, I, you know, maybe in the next couple of weeks. I, I worked with Alan Shipnuck for a long time. Who wrote just wrote this best-selling book on film. I got to read Phil that, Nicholson. and I can Jeez. get him on, and he can, uh, he can, he can sort of give me more insight on this. I, I'm of the belief. When it comes to this stuff, I'm pretty cynical on this. Like, I, I think networks will put on events regardless of who businesses are in. I mean, yeah, I don't think a network would like play the Russian, play some kind of like live sporting event from Russia right now. But short of that, I think a lot the of networks would jump on this. I mean, well, look, NBC did business with China, yeah. right? And the Fox did business with the Russians for the World Cup. Fox is doing business with the Qataris, so. These guys don't really care. They just they're in many ways it is Fox. money and just not have to not have to talk. Well, again, but to be fair, but NBC 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 was just right. in Beijing, Chad, right? So like they played ball with the Chinese and um, and then it gets into the things that we sometimes talk about here as to like you know what's what's their responsibility to talk about this stuff? Will they talk about this stuff as rights holders, et cetera? All right, let's finish up with this because I know you got to go. Um, Nesson, in your neck mm -hmm. of the woods. Um, has just, uh, make sure I, uh, sort of like, uh, like figure this, figure, like explain this correctly. They, they have come out with the ability, if you are a Red Sox and Brewer fan, that is a direct to consumer service. Nesson 360, a digital subscription service allows fans to purchase a direct subscription to Nesson's live programming. So you don't need to get no. a cable bundle. And you can watch the Red Sox and the Bruins as part of this package, which I think is around thirty, 30 bucks, bucks a month. Twenty nine ninety nine. Yep. Okay, so this is you know this is a, this is a very big sort of newish frontier thing here, where you can now bypass the bundle to watch these two very popular teams if you're willing to shell out. If I do my math quickly, um. Like uh, you know, twelve times three thirty six a year. So, so yeah, three sixty yeah. or so for the year. So I don't know what do you what do you you know th these guys won't be the only ones, but what do you think of this? Is your market how successful will this? Yeah, will this uh, a couple be? of thoughts on that. I mean, they're the first to do it. MLB opened up the possibility of doing this at the end of last season, and I think it was part of the new uh, collective bargaining agreement uh, that they uh, it was officially formalized somewhere around that point, but. Um, it's something people have wanted for a long time uh, around here because the only way you can get Nesson on streaming around here in New England is if you subscribe to Fubo TV. It was dropped by YouTube TV. 
Um, so you spend 70 bucks a month for Fubo to watch the Bruins and Red Sox. You probably feel pretty good about this if you're not using Fubo for yeah. uh, to watch, you know, whatever TNT or, or uh, you know, some some news network or whatever it is else that you watch. Uh, I'm a YouTube TV subscriber. My, that's what my family has. We love the d- useful, uh, the uh, unlimited DVR. You can save things forever. Um, and when they draw, when they split with Nesson, uh, we had to think about what we were going to do because it was only available on Fubo TV. And I ended up having to subscribe to both because, and, and uh, uh, because, yeah, Which is really it's 70 bucks a month for, for Fubo TV. So yeah, exactly. uh, a lot of people have complained about the price point with me. I, I think it's reasonable, the $30, because um, if you're one of those people subscribing to a, another streaming service strictly for the Red Sox and, and Bruins, uh, you're not going to pay that 70 bucks a month anymore. Uh, but, you know, you still need to maybe get YouTube TV for other stuff or um, find some other way to get the channels that you want, whether it's other streaming services that you, you know, Netflix or whatever. Um, but I think it's reasonable and uh, we'll see how it, uh, how it succeeds because their previous app was a mess. It just had really bad. Um, yeah. Bad tech, right. Which is going to be really important. So let me read you something here from Ro- our buddy, Robert Seidman, who goes on uh, at sports TV rigs. I know he's a huge fan of this podcast, loves our format chat. I mean, this he, he he tells me he loves the open format. He wants no segments. A conversation, as it were. So he he's he does want conversation. He wants me to say first segment, first topic, <laughs> third topic, eighteenth topic. So the uh, he says this is actually really I think very smart point. The problem for the RSNs is if they price it a lot cheaper, all the traditional bundles who carry RSN will drop it from their bundle, and the RSN will lose a lot of revenue that will not be made up by people subscribing to the streaming service. So if I'm reading him here, the real question is like, what is realistic for Boston Red Sox and Boston Bruins fans in terms of how many people can they get to jump on this versus who's already, who, who, who is already subscribing to Nesson right through their existing cable bundle. And would these, um, would the places that, that, that have, are carrying these RSNs, like would they drop Nesson? If all of a sudden that viewership drops, so it's in many ways there. Nesson is trying to play the same game ESPN's playing, just on a lower level. It's like it's like what at what point do you go direct to consumer, and how do you keep collecting all the big money from the the bundle revenue versus obviously the money that you're going to get from direct to consumer, which is ESPN plus. Well, if you're if you're a cable subscriber, you get this. Uh, so, for free. Yeah, I mean it's you not free, but it's free it. in that you've already committed to paying the money, right? Yeah, right. And uh, as a, uh, streaming wise, the only carrier right now is Fubo. So, um, you know, they I suppose Fubo could end up dropping them or there could be some sort of split there, which maybe explains why, you know, people seem to desire a $10 price point. It's 30 uh, And, and uh, that's probably a little bit of their safety net there, that $20 in between. But um I think that's I think that's reasonable uh, to ask that amount of money for this for, um, you know, for for the option that it gives uh, Red Sox and Bruins Bruins viewers and fans who uh, and there's a lot of them I've heard from a lot of them along the way here who strictly subscribe to Fubo because they couldn't get these teams anywhere else. Well, now they can, 
and it's going to be 40 bucks a month cheaper for them. So here's the last one for me. And again, maybe others have discussed this, uh, but I think it's just a pretty fascinating topic. Do you think that as things go to direct consumer, as Nesson is doing, is it more mm-hmm. incumbent upon the actual teams themselves to have success on the field or on the ice? And here's sort of my thought on this. And maybe I'm totally wrong, and maybe this is a product of my age. I feel like if you have cable, you're paying for cable, and you're getting all the cable channels, and it's just sort of part of your, um, it's sort of part of who you, your your routine. It's if very I'm pay- stable. Yeah, if I'm paying direct to consumer, if I'm paying specifically for like a Nesson app for these two teams, would I pay for that Nesson app? Would I would I would I go direct to consumer if these teams are lousy? And if the teams are not good, right now, right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, or would it? Would yeah. it? Um, you know, would it? Would it? I, I guess, I guess, what I'm sort of coming up with. At least, maybe I'm just only speaking for myself. Like, I get other things with the cable bundle. Like, I get, you know, I get entertainment channels. I get news. But specific to what Nesson is saying is, it's like you're a diehard Red Sox and Bruins fan. Here's where you're getting our games. I would think, in many ways, like they have to be at least competitive. Or else you're paying, you know, thirty a month for like last place teams, and I, I don't know. I wonder at a certain point, like, do you just bail on that because it's extra? Or maybe you're just such a diehard fan that you're getting it, you don't care. I don't know. I'm sort of free freestyling here. I don't, I don't know the answer on that one. This is not the ideal launch point. <laughs> They're twenty three and twenty seven. They've been getting uh, rough, beaten up by the Orioles, and, I know, and but they're uh, still competitive, though. I mean, they're they're not gonna. Yeah, people aren't that thrilled with them right now. You know, Xander Bogarts uh, can opt out, and they haven't offered Raphael Devers a, a long-term yeah, contract. I love both and, those guys. I know. Uh, J.D. Martinez is a Trevor Story is at least hitting the last two weeks. He is. He's up to like 230 now. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, they better get it going if they want people to pay. Trust me, I hear you. Now. I got Garrett yeah. Whitlock and uh, Robles and and and, and Jake Diekman on my team. It's, it's like, well, it's like a deep league. You use some Red Sox relief pitchers. Yeah, I know. <laughs> my, my partner and I were like, all right, Robles or Diekman or, or Whitlock. One of those guys has to be a full-time closer. So far we, we have, we have not been rewarded for, for that, for that analysis. Uh, all right. Is there anything else you want to, uh, promote or add before I let you go? Uh no, Celtics coverage all over the place here. You uh, traveling with, with to uh, are you traveling to San Francisco and if not and or if not are you will you be at the games in person? I will not be I will be traveling for 5 and 7 if necessary, which I Ooh. believe they will be. Although I've only booked a flight for the first one. Love that. Maybe yeah. we can get you from uh from California. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I'll be much yeah. more relaxed out there. I can't. It's beautiful. I mean, San Francisco, Oakland area is awesome. All right. Well, I'll be rooting for that. I now have personal stakes in it to see you get that uh, that air tr- airline trip. <laughs> All right. Chad Finn, sports media writer and general columnist for the Boston Globe. Follow him on Twitter as well as at the Boston Globe, where not only does he do sports media stuff, but as he just told you, he's covering the Celtics, probably one of a ton of people for the Globe. Chad, thank you. Uh, we'll speak again. Thanks, man. Take care. All right, as I said at the top, we now bring in Luis Radnovsky. She's a sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Her piece, Testing Positive in Zero COVID China, was about being isolated under aggressive policies Welcome in China. Back, I should say. During see you, the your, Olympics. Your stateside. Please, joined by not in, Luis not Radnovsky to the Sports Media Podcast. Luis, so I really, I, I really enjoyed your piece. And... Um, and I imagine one of the reasons I've been stateside for a while. No, yes, thank when you. I covered the 2008 Olympics for Sports Illustrated, I lost my passport. 
So I got a little sense of navigating the, um, the how do I sort of say this, the, the bureaucratic sort of means of Beijing. Again, I had a fixer with me, spoke fluent Mandarin, so I was incredibly lucky. But I got a sense I had to go to a number of different places in Beijing, which were incredibly confusing, very lost in translation. Went to a police station, which I'll be very, very honest with you, was um, a little nerve-wracking and anxiety-ridden because the language barriers were terrible. And I also remember, lastly, and this is really where I connected with you, I remember upon boarding home from my flight from Beijing, I had a temporary passport. I had to go to the U.S. Embassy. And the person who was looking at my identification had no idea what it was. Like they had never seen a tent before. They took it and were gone for like 15 minutes. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm never getting out of this airport and I'm never getting back home. That was, I still can remember that horrible anxious feeling of being in the airport before I was fine. They finally came back and I was able to board the plane. So I, I so for lack of a better word, I feel you on a lot of what you wrote. So let's start here. Um, you tested positive 19 hours after arriving in Beijing on February 4th to cover what your sign was covering figure skating at the 2022 Olympic games. If you could, and I know you wrote this, but if you could, at least for my audio audience here, take us into like what's going on in your mind when you receive that, um, when you receive that, um, positive, uh, test result. So the way this actually went down, I got a phone. Well, I got a WhatsApp message from my boss, Bruce Orwell, uh, that was sent probably sometime around 2 AM. He had been emailed, uh, by the, the public health officer attached to our hotel, probably about 50 minutes before that. I woke up at 4 a.m. because as probably a bunch of people know, the first night when you're on uh, on the road for an international sports event, you're sleeping is crazy. So I wake up at like 4 a.m., see this, think, says, can you call right. me? This isn't good. Uh, and I call him and the first thing that actually went through my mind is this must be a mistake, which I'm sure everybody thinks when they get this kind of news. But in my case, um, my family had had COVID in February 21 and I had not. Uh, and we were all, you know, hunkered down together. So I kind of went in thinking, well, you know, the odds are pretty good, even though the Omicron surge was was everywhere. And I had tested negative at 96 hours before departure, 72 hours before departure, 48 hours before departure, which is a bonus test I threw in for myself. Done my very, very best on the three-day journey to Beijing. And I had passed the airport entry test too, which were two incredibly invasive nasal uh, and, and throat swabs. So I sort of felt like things were looking pretty great. Um, the next thing that I did, though, was take a rapid test that I had actually brought with me. I brought a stash of them that I procured in England over the uh, winter uh, break uh, from the National Health Service and took one of those, and that came back positive. And that's when I realized that this was going to be something to uh, really prepare to ride out for an unknown number of days because the circumstances that we were facing were in no way a surprise to us. A number of us, me included, had written in great detail about what the zero COVID policies were going to look like in China when applied to the Olympics. They were going to be incredibly grim for anyone who was caught in them. And we were fully aware that we could be caught in them. So I'm not sure if, if that knowledge was particularly comforting at that moment. We sort of did have a clear idea that there weren't going to be many surprises, but we also knew that there was going to be very little to look forward to for, again, what was going to be an unknown what, period. Because did we knew did that you immediately go in isolation? Did they put you in? Like, what, in so the, the, the test comes, was going to be really you call your editor. Really 
I imagine there's got to be some kind of liaison between whoever the authorities are and the Wall Street Journal. So how does that, what's going on during those conversations? <laughs> so this is all, this is all, yeah, this is all one person. This is my editor, Bruce Orwell, who is- Is he the, in New York or is he with you in China? Between the journal and the public health authorities okay. and also an editor and also, as it turns out, you know, right. a, an intermediary for all of this. He's, he's with us on the ground in China. So at this point, we're also very much hoping that, you know, he doesn't get caught up in this because if his movements would be restricted, I would have been in a lot uh, more difficulty than I already was. And the uh, email that he received and relayed to me wanted me to go into uh, isolation immediately. And what he did, and I think this may have come as a bit of a surprise, is politely request that we not do that. And we had a number of reasons for this, but the most important one was, and I'd been a health policy reporter for a number of years, this sense that the most responsible thing for everybody involved was that I stay hunkered down exactly in my room, bar the door, don't set outside, and be infectious with COVID in this room where I wasn't going to come into contact with any other person. The idea of being moved to another location uh, didn't seem necessary. It also seemed frankly frightening uh, and and difficult from a logistical point of view because I wanted to continue to cover the games to the extent that I could from my room and I wanted to be able to have reasonable access to supplies that could be dropped off by my colleagues elsewhere in the hotel and left at my door. So we did attempt to resist transfer to centralization, central isolation. And we actually held out for five days right. uh, before, uh, it's funny because in the United States, after five days, you would basically be free to go around and do anything you wanted wearing a mask. And we can debate the wisdom of that policy too. But, but, but in this case, at the end of five days, I was transferred by ambulance to an isolation facility, not out into to the world. What was can, what was that? I you, you uh, the piece says that you're transferred to uh, Hotel Rui. I'm probably mispronouncing that. A business hotel outside the closed loop of the Beijing Olympics. What was that isolation facility like? It's actually a very comfortable business hotel. We were lucky in part because we had held out for as long as we had. I was not sent to one of the isolation facilities that earlier rounds of Olympians and others who tested positive went to, and they sound significantly more grim by comparison. Those initial complaints seemingly had freed up more facilities, uh, and that was the one that I was able to go to. That said, a lot of what happened at the Olympics was manageable on the Olympic scale, which is actually relatively small compared to a Chinese scale, uh, when you've got a population of 1.4 billion involved, there were not many people who did test positive. Had there been the conditions, it seems likely would not have been nearly as comfortable. You know, yeah. re meals arrived punctually. Uh, they were uh, they, they showed effort and a willingness to try to, to be helpful, even if they weren't necessarily what I would have chosen for myself. And uh, that's good because I certainly couldn't have got deliveries from outside because of this concern with disinfection. You, you, you know, you were sent by the journal, obviously, to cover a sport, uh, figure skating. What during and obviously there's, you know, you're 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 experiencing COVID. Maybe you have symptoms. Maybe the symptoms are mild, but regardless, you have it in your body. You have a virus in your body, and you're dealing with all the logistics of how the Chinese are handling this. Are are you able to focus at all on writing about figure skating and how logistically are you able to do that? 
I was bizarrely able to focus on writing about figure skating quite a lot because it turned out that it was very useful to have actual work to do as a way of allaying what was basically terror, whether I was ever going to be able to get out of this situation. Uh, so, So that did come in handy. I was able to stream the competition. Um, on Chinese it, television or on no, U.S. television? No, uh, uh, through or BBC. Uh, or I, was a- I was able to get a- an online stream uh, accessible with with the help of a geo blocker. I did right. also tune into uh, the TV broadcast, which was, and I think this is true of any country that is broadcasting the games. What is being streamed? What is being shown on TV for the domestic audience is not necessarily what what you want to see. So it was it was fun to watch, but it it, it wouldn't have got the job done on its own. The uh, you know the um, having covered Olympics, um, you have depending on the sport, you have access to the Olympians through some kind of mix zone. Sometimes uh, there'll be press conferences, uh, especially with the winners at some large press hall. Usually, obviously, the best way to do this, of course, is to have a pre-existing relationship with coaches or athletes, and you can sort of call them or contact them on your own. That's your real best shot, given that setup. But there's a major advantage, of course, to being in the media center. There's a major advantage to being obviously at the arena. You're nowhere on either of these fronts. So how were you able to were you able to overcome, I guess, the the reality of not being in the best potential places to cover this event, which is a prominent event in the Olympics for American fans? I, I was, in part because I did have some numbers loaded onto my phone or that, that were accessible to me while I was there. But the bigger part of it is that I was not the only journal reporter there. Um, I was part of an absolutely outstanding team who uh, did a lot of the on the ground stuff, were tolerant in some cases of me being a little bit bossy and saying, I need you to go here right now to ask this person this specific question, all of whom were outstanding and just the, the people that you would 100% want both working with you to get a story covered and also as your moral support in a, in a tough situation having um having sort of lived uh, kind of a unique experience that 99.9 percent of americans have not did you come away with any kind of thought on um china's isolation policies when it comes to combating covid again i realize you're in the olympics it's not exactly like you're there on april 5th or something like that but you experienced sort of something that you know, most Americans will never experience, and that's at least how, dealing with how another country sort of dealt with this, is dealing with this virus or dealt with this virus. Yeah, a number of the policies that we have since read about, uh, particularly in Shanghai, but also elsewhere in China, that have really uh, caught people's attention, whether it's children separated from their parents after both have tested positive or people uh, opening their their windows to scream out of them uh, because they don't know when their building is ever going to be allowed out of, of, of lockdown or the complaints about food shortages or the concerns about people going to isolation facilities, many of which look very, very grim uh, these days and make me very grateful that that was not the kind of isolation facility that was in effect for what was a small scale event by comparison. These were all, though, you know, on display during the Olympics. The policies were what they were in February, and they remained, as far as we can tell from here now, the same policies in April and May. And they are unpleasant policies to be part of. And I was incredibly lucky that I had ultimately a way out. This is a bit of a journalism nerd question. But, um, you know, one of the things I was struck by was your the, the decision as to when you wrote this. Okay, so you're writing this now in May of 
2022. And I wonder if that was intentional on your part. You work for obviously a global news outlet, uh, an outlet that's known throughout the world, including in China, by the way. Was there an intention as to wait a little bit of time to to write this, or is it just so happens that it was published now for you know whatever myriad of reasons something gets published at any time? There's certainly a myriad of reasons behind that, <laughs> um, but it, you know we had also watched very closely what had been happening in China after we left, and initially right. after I left, uh, there was a wave of conversation about how successful zero COVID had been at the Olympics. Uh, and that this proved that perhaps the Chinese approach might be a model for the rest of the world to follow. And I think there were some, some obvious problems with that that were evident to me experiencing primarily this idea. And again, this is kind of a clash of, of, of perspectives, but from where I was coming, the policy is that you don't move around infectious people. In China, the idea is that if you cannot trust people to stay locked down, they might infect somebody else. So the way to guarantee that they don't do that is to move uh, move them to a central facility where they will definitely come into contact with other people, but you feel like you can monitor it. But I think it has like a lot of universal and quite frankly, global themes. So I'm really glad you wrote it because you have a unique, you had a, not that it was pleasant to go through, but you had a really unique experience as to what you went through. Uh, one more Olympics question. Then I want to finish with Brittany Griner. That's some, that's someone you've written about a little bit for the, the journal as well. Um, the next sort of cycle of the Olympics, the next two are Paris and Cortina, uh, Milan. Um, I feel like someone who has gone through your experience should automatically be placed onto the Olympic team at the Wall Street Journal for Paris and uh, Milan. You should. I feel like you should be rewarded with these two global cities for going through Beijing. Well, I, I covered several Olympics before with gymnastics in the summer and, and figure skating at the winter. And, you know, every Olympics is wonderful in its own way and challenging in its own way. And I will be hopefully looking forward to seeing how, how uh, the challenges arise and where the wonderful parts are as well going forward. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I covered, uh, I covered them from 2002 through 2014 and um, Salt Lake was sort of obviously different just because it was a post nine 11. Um, but, you know, there's nothing like an Olympics, I feel like, in a sort of an exotic foreign city. Um, it's just if you can get someone else to pay for that experience, it's a it's a the great stories are also incredible. Really interesting. That's that's the, the biggest the biggest incredible. part of it. And oh, yeah. this was an Olympics that had some Agreed. pretty incredible stories in the sport that I cover. And it came after an Olympics that also had really incredible sports and in the stories in the sport I was covering in the form of gymnastics. So it's been a pretty busy year. Yeah, I mean, uh um, uh, yeah, for, for, I mean, gymnastics <laughs> this year's, it was the story. I mean, I, you know, that probably is the, the, to me, the, the biggest story to come out of the summer Olympics was what happened with the, uh, the Russian team, the, the women's competition. So totally agree. You have written about Brittany Griner, uh, at least a, a little bit. Um, I've had TJ Quinn on this podcast, uh, twice now. He's really done some really good work for ESPN. And one of the interesting things that I know you're aware of this is initially there was a strategy from um, those who care about Brittany and perhaps even the, the, the U.S. to really not release much information, not be very public. And even the Griner camp really didn't want a lot of attention on this. That has since um, shifted. And so I wanted to just get your reflections again as someone who's sort of written about this, um, what, your, what your impressions are of sort of the shifting strategy that has happened in this case from 
the WNBA, which is when the, when that league decides to sort of go full on with with sort of pushing a message, they're incredible. Um, they were very quiet on this, and now that's changed from petitions to players talking about it in post game press conferences to even Brittany Griner's wife giving a very very public uh, interview. I think this week, in fact, to Good Morning America. So a big shift here in sort of how this is publicly playing in the states. What's your impression of this? Well, the shift has certainly been very notable for those of us who've been covering it since the very beginning as well and encountering a number of people who didn't want to talk for weeks and months before they they, they suddenly did for, for reasons that are certainly understandable. And when we talk to some experts, they explain the reasoning behind that very clearly at every point. Um, that said, at an early stage, I felt lucky enough to talk with the parents of Trevor Reed, who uh, was during this time freed in a, a prisoner swap that I feel many people thought was, was, was really something they hardly dared hope for given the state of U.S.-Russian relations. And it seemed to suggest what might be possible in a way that was a little game-changing there. But one of the strategies that they had pursued uh, increasingly over time was one of being vocal, not just or indeed at all really to, to speak with people in Russia. That wasn't the sole audience they were concerned about. The goal was to make sure that there was enough pressure on the United States government to come to a deal and to follow through with a deal. And a deal is a difficult thing for any government to do, and no government really likes doing prisoner swaps. So they felt like they were campaigning effectively at a domestic audience. And in their case, they did it. Uh, they suggested that it had been effective for them and that they thought perhaps Others might want to consider doing it as well. And of course, in their case, it does appear to have been extraordinarily effective. Most of us um, in sports don't have um, your uh, professional experience. You covered health policy, you covered the White House, although I, honestly, I'm not sure um, what part of sort of the broad White House, capital W, capital H you covered, you can certainly tell me, and immigration policy. Did that kind of um, experience, uh, has that helped? give you some avenues as to uh, report on Brittany Griner, which obviously involves like the State Department. It involves diplomacy. It involves relations between this country and Russia. That the, the reality is that's not something your average sports reporter probably delves in if they're um, even like if you're a Phoenix Mercury beat writer, let's say, and you're covering the WNBA. Geopolitics is not generally something that is part of your arsenal. Has that helped you or does that help you? when covering this story? I think there are a lot of really interesting, not always pleasant stories in sports that involve policy or involve politics or the law. And I do cover a lot of them. I think this is one of them. I think this is one of the most interesting ones we've, we've had for a while while also being deeply unpleasant for everybody involved. Last one for me is you covered, you said you mentioned you covered a lot of USA Gymnastics. Um, the, uh, the history of that organization <laughs> is garbage, just to, to be very blunt on this podcast. Um, it does seem like they're in a much better place now. I think they've hired uh, new heads of it even very recently. They have former gymnasts now, maybe who are part of the board. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, again, as someone who's covered this and anyone sort of who's, I would hope, paying attention in the United States the last decade sort of knows the horrible history of that. Uh, and the enabling that happened there. Do you feel better about USA Gymnastics as an entity heading forward? The reality is, like, um, it's still an immensely popular sport for girls in the United States. Boys, too, but, you know, really girls. The Olympic champions uh, are 
household names and I understand the desire to be like the next Simone Biles and things like that. The television ratings, even in a, uh, even as the Olympics, uh, television viewership drops is still significant for that particular competition. So it, it has, for lack of a, for, as I'm filibustering here, it has meaning in short. So for you, as someone who's covered it and probably covered the underbelly as well, um, where do you see this organization right now in 2022? I think you're right that gymnastics is an incredibly important sport, both every four years when people are really dialed in the Olympics, but also increasingly at the NCAA level. And also given everything that has happened, it's a sort of universally important sports story, even if you're not particularly interested in the gymnastics code of points, although you should be, it's pretty cool. Um, So I anticipate continuing to cover USA Gymnastics on what I think we've written in the past is one of the biggest turnarounds that an organization might ever face in history. I don't know how it's going to go. I certainly haven't prejudged how it's going to go, but I do plan on following it very closely. And I think that is going to be among the top stories for us for the foreseeable future, because it's, as I said, it's very big, it's complicated, and it really matters. And I should mention, I should have mentioned it again, Louise has covered um, Larry Nasser, failures to investigate him. Uh, There's claims against the FBI. Uh, This is really important reporting. Um, that she does. And I think, Louise, you hit on one thing that probably will be a really big story. There's so much written about, obviously, NIL, name, name, image, likeness when it comes to college football players. Gymnasts, though, th- that is a multi-million dollar uh, business. We see that a little with SUNY Lee, but just think about the possibilities of if they decide to really cash in on their popularity, particularly with the demographic that advertisers would kill for. You're, you're looking at millionaires, basically. You don't even have to have to be a gold medalist. Uh, in that situation, you just have to have a, for like, I know we hope sort of everybody hates us, but you just have to have a brand, so to speak. And that you can cash that into mega, mega money. I wrote something about this and I want to say January, 2021, there was a lot of hand wringing at the time about whether female athletes would be left behind by NIL. And I talked to a bunch of gymnasts, a few other female athletes as well, who thought that this idea was pretty crazy because they knew what they had turned down over the years in order to preserve their eligibility. And they were pretty sure that there might be something out there in fashion, cosmetics, not just those areas, but those areas in particular where brands absolutely are looking for young athletic women with great stories to tell about their achievements on and off the, the, um, the floor they certainly didn't feel like they were going to be suffering at all. And that is certainly something yeah. that people have caught on to a little bit after, uh, after this is all kicked in, but they for saw the, it coming for, for sure. Yeah. For, yeah. And if you're in, if that is your business and you're obviously an ethical and reputable agent manager, that's a growth business. I mean, those would be athletes that I think if you're really smart and you find the right brands to connect with, man, you can make it, you can make a fortune on that. It's a pretty diverse um, dem- demographic appeal too. It's an audience that skews, yes. skews female, but is not exclusively female, right. has a lot of young kids, but is not exclusively young kids, perfectly capable of bringing fraternity brothers in at Auburn who think this is just awesome and part of the college experience. People who like rooting for a school period are willing to root yep. for a gymnastics team for sure. Yeah, just it's, it's, it's got it all. Totally right. It's just a rare, it's rare for an athlete to capture, you know, I live in a lot of the 18 to 49 world, given the nonsense that I write about. But like, if you can capture like ages six through like 55, which these women uh, gymnasts really can do, that's a bit of a killer app there. Because in other sports, you're, you know, your age is sort of reduced a little bit, but they have really broad appeal. Um, and that would be one 
that would be one to watch if you're sort of following the name image likeness. So much of this really gets played with college football, a little college men's college basketball. Watch some of these other sports, women's gymnastics, women's track and field, like men's track and field in college that you're going to watch. People are going to make smart athletes and hopefully smart managers. They're, they're, they can do some really interesting things. Uh, There's an ahead. audience question there too. If gymnastics is the marquee event, if women's gymnastics is the marquee event of the Summer Olympics and it can command ratings yeah, of 18 million people, yeah. you know, the Olympics is special and it brings something every four years, including stuff that's willing to make people travel around the world to cover it, to come full circle on this. Why on earth wouldn't you expect to see at least many of those 18 million people interested in watching, say, the Women's Championship final? 100%. It also goes back, I mean, again, we could spend all day on this, but it goes back to imagine if, like, the NCAA Women's Tournament was able to negotiate as its own independent entity, like that tournament itself. And, like, you know, it now gets rolled up in the larger NCAA which ESPN owns all, but like you take some of these individual events, if they were actually able to um, like monetize themselves, including through meteorites, multiple, multiple millions of dollars. And that is where the future is heading. Um, Luis Radnowski is a sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Check out her piece, Testing Positive in Zero COVID China. That was about being isolated under uh, uh, China's COVID policies during the Olympics. You can follow her on uh, Twitter and other various uh, social media outlets. Continued success. And thank you so much today for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Chad and Louise for their time and their insights. Um, if you like these kind of podcasts, there's a lot on the archives page over the last couple of weeks and months uh, that you should enjoy from Tom Berducci on Roger Angel and the art of uh, baseball writing to uh, Leslie Visser on her career. Interviews with Joe Davis, the new voice of the World Series, Susie Culber, Larry Kalmus, and calling uh, Rich Strike's amazing Kentucky Derby win, Gus Johnson. Last podcast, we did uh, head away from sports to talk to John Woodrow Cox, who's an enterprise reporter at the Washington Post and covers uh, gun violence on children. Um, obviously, everybody's been affected by evolving in individual and, and societal ways. And I did want to use this uh, forum as small as it is at least provide some insight on that. So head to the archives. It should be, or hopefully you'll find something you like. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work on this podcast. Thank you to Cadence 13, and thanks to everybody for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.